Well, if you would please, if you have a copy of God's Word, please open it up to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 11 through 25 this morning. Exodus 2 verses 11 through 25. These are the words of God. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, last week we began, or excuse me, we finished looking at the episode with the Hebrew midwives, and we saw that there was indeed such a thing as something as a godly use of deception, but that that didn't mean Uh, That didn't throw out everything that the Bible says about living lives of honesty and letting our yes be yes and our no be no. We also saw the wonderful story of God's provision at the birth of Moses, how God used his mother and his sister and Pharaoh's daughter to preserve the life of this redeemer that God was raising up. And we saw that despite Pharaoh's attempts and we might even say despite Satan's attempts, there was nothing at all that anyone could do to stop God from raising up a Redeemer to save his people. And today, uh, we're not looking at Moses as a baby anymore, three months being carried along in an ark in the Nile River or in some river in Egypt. Uh, But we see him as a 40-year-old man. And that really is quite a gap if you think about it. And there are probably a lot of details that we'd like to know that the Scriptures leave out. But we have to remember that God has left in exactly what we do need to know in the scriptures. And one of the things we find from the New Testament 
is what the Holy Spirit preserves for us in Acts chapter 7 because Stephen mentions the upbringing of Moses. And he says in Acts chapter 7 verse 22, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now you have to remember, because of what Joseph had done many years before this, Egypt came to be the world superpower. And now Moses was raised in the most powerful and the most elite family in all of the world and received the very same education that any of the other sons of Pharaoh would have had. Now think about what you know about ancient Egypt already. You, you, when you think about ancient Egypt, you think about the pyramids. You think about amazing structures of architecture and amazing feats of engineering that baffle modern minds even to this very day. We still aren't really sure how they accomplished some of the things that they accomplished. And so Moses' education would have included these things. It would have included a study of history, of mathematics, of architecture, of war and combat, of science, of all these fields and at the very highest level that you could possibly imagine. But in all this, in all this education that he received, Moses never forgot what his mother taught him when he was a baby up until the time he came to live in Pharaoh's house. Moses knew that he was a Hebrew. And Moses remembered, albeit faint, many of the promises that God had made. They, they knew something about them. They had been passed down orally from generation to generation. But they didn't know everything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But still they knew that God had promised to bring them up out of the land of Egypt and, and, and to give them a land of their own. That this was the promise that some God had made, not the gods of Egypt, but that some God had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And in the coming weeks, by the way, we'll see that they were not exactly sure uh, too much about this God. But even so, Moses remembers the promises and he knows that there's something different going on and he knows that he has a special purpose in his life. And we see that he actually demonstrates faith in this God. Now, uh, it might surprise you because up until about four days ago, I had always thought of Moses as a murderer. I had always thought that this killing of the Egyptian was something wrong that he had done. And I may not be able to persuade you today that this was actually something good that Moses had done. And the reason I say that is because my wife and I had a discussion about this four days ago and I was not able to persuade her. So just know that um, there are differing opinions uh, amongst Christians and uh, conservative commentators uh, alike and, um, and that disagree. Uh, but anyway, what I want to show you from, these, from this text this morning for the remaining of chapter 2 is that Moses actually did demonstrate faith in Egypt and while he was in exile when he fled. And then we're going to talk about where was God in all of this. So let's begin. Let's see if I can maybe persuade you that Moses was actually demonstrating faith in Egypt. I want to read to you two passages. Uh, the first is from Hebrews chapter 11. This is the inspired New Testament commentary on what actually happened in Egypt. And so uh, this is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. It says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the, repro the reproach of Christ greater riches 
than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So here we have the author of Hebrews saying that what Moses was doing was actually identifying with the people of God because he trusted in the true God and chose rather to suffer harm and, and to identify with the people of God rather than his wealthy upbringing as a son of Pharaoh. And in the other passage uh, that gives us an inspired New Testament commentary and help in understanding this event uh, with the slaying of the Egyptian is in Acts chapter 7, which I've already alluded to, and verses 23 through 25. And this is Stephen. And he says, Now when he was 40 years old, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. All right, so those are the New Testament passages. I'm going to allude to those a couple of times as we walk through uh, the text here in Exodus chapter 2. So just have those in the back of your mind that what uh, the author of Hebrews says and at the same time what Stephen says in the book of Acts. So if you look at verse 11, we see that Moses, it says, went out to his brethren. And if you recall back to Genesis, even in the days of Joseph, when there was no dispute or no, I guess you could say, racial animosity between the Hebrews and the Egyptians, they still viewed the Hebrews as an abomination because of their practice. It says that the shepherding was an abomination to the Egyptians. So even at that point, when there was no bad blood between the two people groups, they were still viewed kind of as an abomination to them because of uh, their trade. And now, fast forward to the time when all the Egyptians hate the Hebrews, they're only that much worse. Now remember, these are the most grotesque people in all of Egypt at this point in time. They had been starved, they were often beaten, many of them probably died at the hands of the Egyptians more than we could ever know. And we see something of how terrible their situation was by the way it's described later in the chapter. But notice that it says he went out to his brethren. The point being, they would not have kept these brutalized slaves in the royal household. So what Moses does is actually go out to visit. This is something that he is doing intentionally. He is leaving the household of Pharaoh. He is identifying with the people of the Hebrews. He actually has to make a trip and to do some traveling to go and visit his brethren. And notice also that twice in verse 11, it calls them his brethren. So by using this language, Moses, who wrote this account, uh, gives us the true historical account inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying that he is by this visit to his people separating himself from the Egyptians and going out to identify with his brethren. Now, you may think still that I'm reading too much into the text, but uh, let's remember what we're told in the New Testament. Remember that in Acts, Stephen said that he went to visit his brethren. Okay, now hang on that word, visit. Because here's why. In the New Testament, this word for visit is always used in terms of some sort of deliverance or a help that is being given. In Matthew 25, 36, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. Same word that Stephen uses. Also, in Luke 1, 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel 
for he has visited and redeemed his people. So this word that Stephen uses is he is using the language of redemption and the language of rescue and the language of help, saying when Moses did this, he was attempting a rescue mission for his people. But what about in verse 12 where it says he looked this way and that way and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian? Surely what this has to mean is that Moses was premeditating his strike and is guilty of something like murder. Well, but this is this language here of looking this way and that way and then jumping into action is also very, very similar to what we find in the prophetic literature, particularly in Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 59, 15 and 16 it says, then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness. It sustained him. Let me read also from Isaiah 63. The Lord says, I looked. I looked this way and that way. Similar language. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury, it sustained me. So uh, what, what I think we should see here is not necessarily that Moses, Moses is premeditating some sort of murder, but when it says that Moses looked this way and that way, what he is doing is he is saying, is there anyone who's going to help this brutalized slave? Here is someone who is being beaten to death. Is nobody going to do anything about it? And so what does he do? He does the same thing that the Lord does. His own arm brings salvation. When God sees that there is no one who is able to deliver his people, he takes salvation into his own hands and becomes our rescuer. And that is a similar thing to what Moses does. He sees this man. Remember, Moses was a prince in Egypt. Moses had the power of the sword. Moses could have killed some some lord over the slaves if he had wanted to. It, there was nothing in Egyptian law forbidding that. The great problem was the fact that he was obviously identifying with the Hebrews. That was what caused the uproar in Pharaoh's household. So Moses, in the same way, sees no one who's going to intercede, no one who's going to rescue. And so he says, well, I guess I've got to be the one to rescue this man and to help him. And this really, I believe, is what Stephen is getting at. Or rather, the Holy Spirit through Stephen in Acts chapter 7, because it says, uh, first of all, that he had been wronged. And also it says he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. So this action of Moses is not communicated as something that is a sin. Now, I'm not saying because Moses was a Christian or had faith that therefore he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. We have the story in the scriptures of David. Where, you know, David sins and commits adultery and then murders the husband of uh, Bathsheba. And we, we have these accounts where men who trust in the Lord do commit very, very grievous sins. So I'm not saying because he, he was a man of faith or trusted in the true God and in the promises of God that that means he didn't sin. I'm saying that this specific account is not one of those examples. So I, I do think it's clear from what Stephen says. Remember, it says uh, that, let me find it. 
Okay, Stephen says, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And so what Stephen is saying is Moses is attempting to rescue this man. Moses is attempting to rescue the people of Israel as a whole. And he thinks that they would have understood that. That's the one thing we could say clearly from the text that Moses did get wrong, is that he thought that they would accept him as their leader, and yet they reject him. And this is clear from what it says in the very next verse in Exodus, this sarcastic comment made when he tries to help two of his brothers. It says, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Now, remember, Moses was a prince. Moses was a judge over them. Moses was, uh, for all intents and purposes, the son of Pharaoh. Moses did hold this power. What this is showing us is that Israel, the Hebrews, rejected his leadership. And the reason that he hides the body in the sand, by the way, is because they rejected his leadership. So because they rejected this rescue attempt and this justified what I think is a justified defense of a helpless slave that is being beaten to death, because they rejected his leadership, therefore, he says, well, now i got to cover my tracks and hide the body because Pharaoh is going to hear about it. And they had been talking about the thing. So we, we do have testimony both within the text with the language that's used, but also uh, the New Testament testimony that I think what Moses is doing here is an act really of defense for this helpless slave. Um, but also, remember the book of Exodus. Remember what it's about. Ultimately, it's not about a guy named Moses or a guy named Pharaoh. Ultimately, what we have in Exodus are these pictures of Christ, these types and shadows of what was to come. It was Christ who also was in danger as a baby. It was, uh, was it not Christ who went to his own and his own received him not, which is exactly what we see with Moses. And was it not Christ who had to go to those who were outside of his people uh, and minister to them? And this indeed is what we see of Moses as well. And that's actually where we come in the narrative to the next section, verses 16 through 22. Uh, we go from what I believe is faith in Egypt to showing faith in exile as well. Really what he does is go from a failed rescue to a successful rescue. Now, it says in verses 16 through 22 that Moses goes, he's got to flee Egypt and he goes to the land of Midian. Now, Egypt was at the northeast corner of Africa and sometime after the service today, flip to the back of your Bible and you'll see that to the very right or east of the northeast corner of Africa is the, the Sinai Peninsula. And he goes all the way across the Sinai Peninsula to the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the land of Midian. All right, And this is about roughly 350 miles as the crow flies. And remember, he went by himself. We don't know if he had a camel. We don't know if he walked. We don't know, but it was a rough journey. But he had to get out of Dodge for safety to keep Pharaoh from finding him and killing him. So he ends up uh, coming to a well in the land of Midian, and he finds seven daughters of the priest of Midian. And what happens is that these shepherds attempt to drive them away. Remember this language of driving away. Now, one of the things you have to remember, if you remember about David in the scriptures, you remember that he talks about having to fight off these wild animals. David was a, was a tough man, and much of the work that he did as a shepherd prepared him for many of the battles that he would face later in life. 
So when you think of a shepherd, don't think of a little a little tiny shepherd boy, you know, petting a sheep here and there. You need to think of someone who would have had to fight off thieves, someone who would have had to fight off wild animals. So when it says that this group of shepherds uh, drove away, this word for driving away is a very stern word. It can sometimes mean to conquer, to drive out, to get rid of these people with violence. Uh, these shepherds drive these women away. It says that Moses by himself stood up and was able to rescue them. And indeed, after he rescued them and did whatever he did with the shepherds, watered their flocks. Now, he must have handled them quite ably because Ruel, when they go to their father, says, how in the world did you guys get back so quickly from doing all this? Now, remember, you had to have water. Okay, your family can't survive and your flocks can't survive. You can't have a business and you can't survive at all if you don't have water. So this this Moses was indeed saving their family because these shepherds would have kept them from being able to have any sort of business and any sort of income. And he says, how did you all get back so quickly? And they said, well, an Egyptian, note that they called him an Egyptian. He must have apparently looked like an Egyptian at this point growing up in Pharaoh's household. An Egyptian rescued us. And delivered us from the hand of these shepherds. So apparently, in Moses' education of war and combat, what it looks like is that Moses probably very ably fought off these men and rescued the daughters of this uh, Midianite priest. And one thing leads to another, as any man would. He said, you know, why didn't you invite this guy over for dinner if he rescued you guys? And so Moses goes over for dinner he ends up liking it, so he works for the guy. A couple years down the road, he marries Zipporah, his daughter, and then they have a baby. And I want you to see that I think one of the most significant things about this passage is what he names his son. It says in verse 22, he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now, I actually think that what we have here is yet another play on words with a name. So it is plain from the text that Gershom does sound like uh, the Hebrew that means a stranger there. And again, Moses is saying by naming his son, I was a stranger in Egypt. He is recognizing himself as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He recognizes I follow this God and I remember these promises and I identify myself with the people of God, not with the Egyptians. But there's actually another thing that Gershom's name means. Gershom's name is actually the very same verb that is used when it says that the shepherds drove out the daughters of the Midianite. And it means to drive out or to conquer. But notice that. Uh, what, what Moses is doing when he's naming his son, he's not really naming his son, he's naming himself and he's commemorating his own experiences because he says, I'm going to name him Gershom because I was a stranger in Egypt. But also, if we were reading this text in Hebrew, we would see it also means to drive out. So what Moses is doing, the very same thing that we see in the text last week where Moses means one who draws out of the water because he would be the one who draws God's people out of the water. Gershom's name means to drive out. He knew he was going to be the one, or at least God knew at a very minimum, to drive God's people out of Egypt. And we have all these foreshadowing events saying Moses is the one. 
Moses is going to bring God's people out of Egypt. But then we're left wondering, where is God in all this? Where is God in these first two chapters? Well, uh, think about this. Uh, the king of Egypt eventually dies. And so the one who wants Moses' head on a platter, so to speak, is long gone. And they kind of forget about Moses. But the people are still brutalized in slavery. This institution didn't go away for a long time, for several decades. And down in verses 23 and 24, listen to the way it describes uh, the suffering that they had undergone. Because of the situation they were in, it says that they were groaning and crying out. Now, I know that later in the scriptures, they talked about how they were living it up at the fish fries and onion pots back in Egypt. But this was some seriously opaque rose-colored glasses that they were looking through to remember their time in Egypt. They were in real pain. They were in real anguish when they were in Egypt. And it says that they were groaning and crying out as they were being brutalized by the Egyptians. And the scriptures in verses 24 and 25 tell us four things that God did. Four things. First of all, it says that He heard their groaning. God hears them, which is very interesting because if you look back at the text, it doesn't say that they're groaning and crying out to God. They're not praying and asking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for deliverance. But yet, even though they're not crying out to Him specifically, He still hears their groans and their cries. And so even when we, as God's people, fail miserably to do what we're supposed to do, which is to let Him know what our cares are and to ask Him for help and to pour out our concerns, uh, the concerns of our heart to the Lord, even when we fail to do that, God still knows when we are suffering and He still knows when we are groaning. He hears those groans and those cries of His people. The second thing that it says is that God remembered His covenant. Now, this can't possibly mean that somehow God had forgotten at one point what he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one of the reasons we know that is because in Genesis 15, God had actually promised that part of his plan was to bring them into a foreign land and that they would be afflicted and suffer in that. And that's Genesis 15, 13. Uh, so it's clear that this doesn't mean that God who hears their groanings had somehow forgotten about his promises. What this actually means, whenever the Bible uses this phrase that God remembers his covenant, this means that God is about to act upon the promises that he has made in a covenant. Listen to Genesis 9:14 and 15. Or excuse me, in Genesis 9:14 and 15, God promises to remember the covenant that he had made with Noah when he sees the rainbow in the sky. What does that mean? Not that God had forgotten about it, but that when he sees the rainbow in the sky, he is going to fulfill his promise not to flood the whole earth. In Leviticus 26 verses 40 through 45, God said that he will remember his covenant and that he would remember the land whenever his people sinned against him and he drove them into exile or he uh, set a famine upon them. When they repented of their sins, he would remember his covenant and remember the land, meaning that he would heal them, forgive them and bring them back into the land and that the land would once again produce when they repented. 
So to say that God remembers his covenant is simply a way of saying that God is acting upon the promises that he has made in his covenant. Thirdly, it says that God looked upon the children of Israel. Once again, it's obvious that this doesn't mean that somehow his people were not in his gaze, but all the while, everything that was happening was part of his plan. God had promised them, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, that they would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and as numerous as the sands of the sea. God had not forgotten anything. This is God about to act. God is looking upon them. God is fixing his gaze upon them, getting ready to fulfill his promises. And the last thing that it says is that God acknowledged them. And I think I say this almost every week, but this is the word for know, that God intimately knows his people. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Meaning that God understands and intimately knows the suffering that his, his people are undergoing at this point, And he is just about ready to act and fulfill his covenant promises to deliver his people. So what are we to make of all this? Because I, I see one overarching theme through all of this passage, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, really through the whole first two chapters of Exodus, and that is the faithfulness of God. That God is faithful to deliver his people and to keep his promises. Now, we tend to think of the attributes of God, one of which being his faithfulness, meaning those things that God can do. But here, when I think and when I see how God is acting here and I think about the faithfulness of God, I'm reminded of the things that the Bible says that God cannot do. And the first thing that the faithfulness of God implies is that God cannot lie. Listen to Titus 1, 1 and 2. It says... Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, listen to this in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Now, think about that. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about salvation, the salvation of God's elect, his chosen people. And he says that he promised that before time began. Were you there before time began? No. Was I there before time began? No, we were not. Who was there? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What Paul is alluding to here is really this inter-Trinitarian covenant that is happening. God chose a group of people. The, the, the Father chose to save His elect, which is what Titus 1, 1 and 2 says, and then it says that He made a promise to deliver those people before time began. The, the Son of God promised to come and accomplish that redemption for that group of people, and the Holy Spirit agrees to apply that redemption to those elect that God has chosen. What we have here is, is a picture of who God is. That the fact that God is faithful means that God is, cannot lie. That if God were to lie, He would no longer be God. This is who God is by His very nature. It is impossible 
for God to go back on his promise to deliver his people. And this is one of the reasons that it made perfect sense for whoever had heard of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to believe it. Because God cannot lie. God's faithfulness means that he cannot lie. Secondly, God's faithfulness means that he cannot change. Listen to Malachi 3.6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God is the essence of perfection. Because he is perfect, nothing can be detracted from him. And because he is perfect, nothing could be added to him that would make him in any way better. If that were the case, if he could be detracted from or added to, then he wouldn't be perfect. And because of his perfection, this means that he cannot change. And it said in Malachi 3.6, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Think about that. It is because God does not change that all of you, all of we, sons of Jacob, the children of Abraham by faith, are not consumed. It is because God has promised in eternity past to save His people from their sins by His Son, that it is impossible, impossible for those who come to Christ by faith to not be saved. Because God is faithful, God does not change. Also, God's faithfulness means that God cannot forget His promises. I've already read to you several passages that tell us that God remembers His covenant. And one of the things I think is funny, that uh, some of the people that I've read, they say, well, God remembers His covenant. Well, that obviously must mean that He forgets. Well, I tend to think that when the Bible says that God remembers, it means that He remembers, not that He forgets. What, we're trying to, what, we're, uh, what Moses wants us to learn from this, what God wants us to learn is that God doesn't forget. That God remembers, that God cannot forget His promise of eternal life to you. That because God cannot lie, because He cannot change, and because He cannot forget His covenant promises, that is the basis for which we can have the hope of eternal life. Because God has sent His Son to die for our sins, it is impossible for any of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to not have eternal life. By the way, if any of us could lose our salvation, I believe that we would have done it before we walked out of the door of our house this morning. It is God who has promised to deliver us. It is God who has promised us eternal life and salvation. So when you sin, and you are going to sin, you're going to sin today. Do not think, well, I must not be a Christian because I sin. No, what you need to think is, if, if I have the Holy Spirit inside of me, then I, I hate this sin. So this really is an indicator that I am a Christian. It, when you don't feel any conviction of sin, when you don't think that you've done anything wrong, when you've obviously done something that the Bible says not to do, that is when you ought to think, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I'm not really trusting in the Lord. But when you sin, don't think, oh, I must not be a Christian. No, look to Christ. Don't have all your eyes fixed upon you and your sin. You have to look at everything through the lens of the gospel. 
You have to look at everything through the lens of God's faithfulness that He has promised eternal life to all those who come to Christ by faith. And that means that you are His child forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do thank You for Your wonderful promise of eternal life through Christ. We thank You for the promise of deliverance that You promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants in bringing them up out of the land of Egypt. And we thank You for this glorious picture that it reminds us of our deliverance from sin and Your wrath through the blood of Your Son, Jesus, and His resurrection. In Your name we pray. Amen.